0: I used to work seven days a week. I was out of my depth. I wouldn't call myself, it's it's interesting, isn't it, the the leader word. Was I a leader? Absolutely not. I wouldn't call myself a leader uh, at that point. I wasn't even, I didn't even have a vision. I didn't have a mission. I didn't have an idea of what I was trying to get to. It was just managing day to day.
1: Hi there, I'm James Ashton. Can a new leader offer continuity with the past at the same time as clearing up from a crisis? That's the focus of this episode of Leading, which delves into the world of advertising. Leading is supported by Lockton, the world's largest privately owned independent insurance broker. Lockton's independence means its 8,000 associates worldwide are free to focus solely on their clients' risk and insurance needs. To hear more from Lockton experts, please visit locktoninternational.com slash gb slash insight. So to this episode, Murray McLennan is chief executive of m and one of the most famous names in advertising. He took over the reins at the start of 2021 at a critical time after a boardroom exodus and accounting crisis rocked the business. McLennan is hardly a new broom. He joined Saatchi Saatchi in 1983. We talk about his early responsibility overseeing key accounts such as British Airways and famous grouse whiskey. His decision in 1995 to follow the brothers Morris and Charles to set up their breakaway agency MNC, changing the culture since the rip-roaring 80s and remaking the working environment post-COVID to get the best out of his creative team. It's an enjoyable episode, and I began the conversation asking Murray why he thought he was asked to lead the company back to stability. Well, I helped start the
0: company on day one in 1995 and I'm a one company man, which doesn't make me qualified necessarily, of course, uh, in that I started at Sarchi and Sarchi in 1983, just to date myself. So I may be missing many qualifications in terms of being the right candidate or the right choice, but you can't fault me on knowledge and experience of the brand and Saatchi and what makes it strong and what makes it good and right. And I guess the decision, clearly it wasn't mine, it was the new non-executive directors, decided that continuity uh, had its benefits uh, and that therefore I would be appointed, because I had been running the worldwide network for over 10 years. And despite the fact that things had gone wrong and there were accounting misstatements, the underlying businesses were strong and i knew them well i'd recruited many of the people and put them in place so the misguided plc decided i was the right choice
1: <laughs> well that was what i was curious about because clearly you have got that pedigree i mean you have you have only ever worked for for a company with with sachi over the door since you began working in the early 80s but it felt like uh, with these accounting problems that emerged in in summer 2019 that if ever the company was going to to break with the past this might have been it it was an extraordinary time, really, when you think about it. I mean, uh, because
0: from the end of 19 through 20, through to the end of 2020, we, we had 15 months of turmoil at M&C Saatchi, because, which started with the accounting misstatements in, in August, and then things unraveled from there. And you know, the Saatchi brand, and it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? We benefit from it when things go well but disproportionately badly when things go wrong. And we were, we were headlines for all the wrong reasons through September, October, November, December, um, the accounting misstatements, the delay in the audit because of that, the leaving of the non-exec, uh, directors en masse, then the leaving of the, the other executive directors in 2020. So there's a brand new executive, a brand new non-executive headlines. Uh, investigations, and lots of negative press and publicity. So it was a a crisis for our company. And then in the February of last year, there was of course COVID, the world's crisis. And so suddenly we were locked, we were in the middle of our crisis. The thousands of people who worked for our company were then wondering what was going on, what was the future, locked into their their rooms, waiting for uh, clarity in terms of a way forward Who was going to lead our company? What was the new strategy? When would it happen? When would it end? And to an extent, there was a certain paralysis as the audit was going on, because it was difficult to make any decisions until that line had been drawn. And that didn't happen until until November in the end. So it was an extraordinary time to be trying to operate the company, and if you like, lead the company. Everything was not wrong with our company. And it would have been a massive retrograde step, not necessarily to appoint someone else other than myself, of course, (laughs) but to sweep everything away, to sweep all the good away in the company. And it's important as we are particularly important, as we're all locked down in in our rooms, to remember that we need to take, especially if you're running a global company, to take a global perspective and to take a broad perspective rather than your own narrow perspective. So as far as I was concerned, it was all about governance, shareholders, investments, and the share price and the, and the media. As far as someone was concerned in South Africa or Australia, they were celebrating winning leading agency of the year, most innovative company of the year with very few headlines, negative headlines. And the clients judging people on the work that they produced and the people who are working on their business, and that was their the, the reality, the reality for them. They were good, world-leading businesses, and we still have those, and we still had those. It required a a cool, calm, detached head, but also a reaction to what was changing within our industry and our sector and our landscape. and the, And the key to to that again is to I think is to have a flexible plan. You need a degree of decisiveness, a degree of clarity in terms of the vision, if you like, the overall shape of the industry and what it's likely to be. But no one knows, still knows really, the details of how that's going to play out. So you need to remain flexible so you're not just chasing the latest fashionable, shiny, bauble and zigzagging this way and that. Because for us in particular, What our people wanted and needed was a degree of, yes, confidence, calmness, and certainty in terms of what's the path and the way out.
1: You're not not the man to chase the shiny baubles, Murray.
0: Well, I have been known, but I have other people to make sure that I don't do that.
1: I'll come on to the future because you've obviously set you've you've been CEO since the the start of January. You set out a a path forward at the at the end of January. So January must have been quite a, a busy month for you. I'm interested in the prognosis though of of what had gone wrong. I mean, famously, the mantra used to be brutal simplicity of thought. Clearly, there was some lax oversight there. Had this fast moving startup that you'd been involved in since in ninety five just got a bit too complicated?
0: It was definitely. Some of that, and 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 just since you mentioned brutal simplicity of thought and diversity of thought, which are are two sort of key principles, we're keeping those, and I think it's important to keep the fundamental building blocks and the principles and the, and the values, unless they obviously have become rotten and wrong. But we don't think ours was in that respect. But in terms of January, it was an incredibly challenging month, as we we needed to get the new, you know, the new the new strategy out in front of people. It needed to to be right for investors, for our own people. It needs to be right for clients as well.
1: I think I was interested in, in the prognosis. I mean, what had gone wrong? Because some of the stuff that you've done already has been, you've been stripping back, you've been closing offices and reorganizing the business. It, it feels like the, the simple direct M&C model that you've all talked about uh, over many years you know we have a startup culture we help companies start up and we bring them into our family it had all got a bit bloated and a bit complicated seems to be yeah. from an outsider's point of view i think there's, there's there's some
0: truth in that and you know in terms of what went wrong in terms of the headline you know it was an accounting misstatement uh, so it was a, it was a bookkeeping error and you could put it down to something relatively small and diminish it like that. But I think behind that, there were other cracks in the structure and the governance um, which which had gone wrong. And I think bad habits form in good times. And as far as we were aware, for 25 years or 24 years, we'd had good times. Profits had increased year on year. We'd had significant success in the marketplace globally across all sectors. And I think some bad habits did set in during those times. Yes, we should have reviewed some of the governance, the centralization. Uh, what was wrong in the organisation before was, yes, we believe in ownership. We still believe in ownership. We still believe in entrepreneurship, that, that spirit. And I think that's what got us through the crisis, actually, was people taking on uh, that responsibility and actually fixing it themselves. But at the same time, what we had done was deliberately, as a, as a strategy and a policy, was to keep the centre very small and perhaps... We confused governance and bureaucracy, and what we needed was governance, but not bureaucracy. So we kept the small the, the, the center very small. It was a light touch in terms of centralization, in terms of central policies, in terms of control to some extent. You know, we found talent, we backed the talent, we put it into a culture um, and a vision that people believed in. And, and that's where we focus. What we should have been doing as we started more and more businesses was also exponentially strengthen our central policies. That's what was required. Our, our systems, our policies, our governance needed to strengthen at the same time as the company became more multifaceted. Now, in terms of the complexity, I think that's also true, what you say. I think that it did become too difficult to navigate from the outside and difficult to manage. Doesn't mean that we didn't have the right talent doing the right things in some ways, but it was the structure um, and the ability for clients to navigate it that had become too complex. So that's, that's one of the first things that I looked at was strengthening the center, strengthening the governance, simplifying it to manage and simplifying it from a governance point of view.
1: Because it's worth saying, I mean, the, the 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 lazy perception of MNC is this is a you know very successful, very creative ad agency in so in a lovely building in Soho. But actually, this company is very diverse across data, across talent management, sport, global issues, and across, I think, 30 countries. And you will know you've got the Air Miles Murray from, uh, from helping to set up all these offices. I haven't been able to spend any of them recently. But
0: <laughs> yes, I mean, in a way, perhaps we're victims of our of our past, you know, the books that were written in the 80s and 90s, the the Thatcher years, the political advertising, all extraordinary in its own way, but and drove a lot of the fame. But I, the way I look at it is that it's some of that, let's call it analog fame, that has obscured the extent to which it's a completely different beast to even 10 years ago, uh, let alone when we started the company. And as you say, under 10% of our revenues and profit come from advertising now. What, what, what would be called traditional advertising? And, and, and there is an existential sort of debate within our, our industry at the moment around that. I mean, it's almost painful to see the number of or the, the, the companies desperately not trying to use the word, word advertising to describe themselves. And to an extent, we do the same because uh, as soon as you go down that road, you're an advertising agency, so you're traditional now, as soon as you get asked that, no, our output is 95% digital, but your traditional, then, then on you go. So I think, you know, in terms of our revenues and our output, it's, as I said, what, what, what the company was known as is, is a tiny percentage now.
1: And what's the, been the, I mean, it's very, very early days for you still, but what's been the big adjustment? Because of course, um, you've been at the top of this agency for many years, you were the worldwide CEO. I think you've kindly called the previous structure idiosyncratic. You reported into the, the group CEO, David Kershaw, who you seem to have been moving into his shoes uh, for for several decades now, Murray, because I think you replaced him on the British Airways account going back in time. Is the big change that you're now dealing, the buck stops with you and that you have the shareholders to satisfy, is that the difference you feel? I see it as somewhat more fundamental than that actually. And I think, you know,
0: David and the previous exec would agree, given what's what's happened, a more fundamental review was really required in terms of the strategy and the structure and the organization going forward. Add COVID on top of that, the degree of change that's required internally. So I do think that yes, of course, in terms of my responsibility, there's a a whole new Section of that in terms of investors and shareholders, and that in turn brings scrutiny from the the media and the like. I'm, I'm reasonably used to that. I've done a couple of question times in my in my time, and uh, and I've headed up the industry bodies in Europe and the UK. So that brought a fair amount of media exposure, I suppose. So it's it's less that, but certainly the investor community, investor relations, is a new thing for myself. But I think I think that starts with getting the business right. And if you get the business right, then the investor relations fall into place. And so, no, the majority of my time and effort is spent internally in terms of ensuring, or helping ensure anyway, that the the vision is the right one, where we're trying to get to in three and five years' time, how we see the market developing, what new capabilities we require, what new structures, what new systems, what new technologies, how we need to adjust the the culture, the people, the talent, the recruitment, the training. I think reviewing, it's it's an opportunity to review everything. It would have been quite easy to say, well, there wasn't too much wrong. It's all fine. It's all fine. There was an accounting, there was a misstatement. We must be, you must look at our, accounting procedures. But I think it it would be a huge missed opportunity and wrong to do that. So I see my job as restructuring, uh, re-looking at everything that we do, re-questioning whether the, the capabilities, making sure or aiming to make sure that there's a clarity in terms of what we Offer clients that the Emissy Sarchi group is much more clear than it was before in terms of what we stand for, because brutal simplicity of thought was a philosophy, but it, it wasn't a proposition for clients. So it was just a, it was an opportunity to reevaluate everything. And, and it, I've certainly found it uh, a challenging first three months where it was a matter of getting the new strategy in place, starting with the Capital Markets Day at the end of January, making sure, helping to start making sure that that lands. And then starting to restructure internally as well in terms of introducing an exco, introducing a, a stronger centre, uh, new chief people officer, new company secretary, new general counsel, uh, new strategy director. So quite a, quite a, a few fundamental changes within, and, and and continue doing that really across the
1: next six months. You talked about people. I'm interested in the morale point because not all of your people are. Creatives, as i say, this is this is the the difference between the perception and reality of of the company you're running, but I know that that at its heart you, you know you are a creative business, and I guess people in any discipline can't do their best work if there's a lot of uncertainty around. So how has the last year been for that, and how have you brought people back together?
0: yeah it's, it, look, it's been interesting for everyone, hasn't it, in terms of the the separation and how do you maintain the right culture and mindset? And the first thing you need to accept is you can't completely. You can't control people's mindsets when they're locked down in these extraordinary circumstances for over a, over a year around the globe. But I think that the, what we've found, as many companies have, is that the, the paradox, I suppose, was whilst we're we're more separated than ever before, in certain ways we've been brought closer and we've all adapted quite quickly, really, in terms of communications and the amount we communicate, the way we communicate, who we communicate with, really. And again, I'm sure many companies have found the same, that what we've done and learned is that you can connect better, more frequently, and in a more transparent way to more people more often. So on the creative point in particular, uh, yes, we are a creative company. Again, there's much debate about technology in our company and in in our sector, rather, and the role of technology and the role of data and the importance of data and the importance of accountability. And I think it's Very important to be very clear uh, when you're in a business like ours that we're not a technology company. You know, we are a creative company. It's the quality of our imagination and our ideas, yes, informed by, made more efficient by data and technology, but that's the heartland. That's ultimately why we're being paid, the quality of those people and their ideas and their imagination, if you like, their creativity. And to, to to maintain that, I don't th- I don't think do you know I don't think it's to do with uncertainty. I don't think that affects creative people so much. I think where they found it most difficult is just the stimulation. It's that you you need to be stimulated, and and stimulation first and foremost comes through people. And I think that's what creative people have have missed most. And, and I'm predicting. Am I predicting? I'm expecting um, in the next. Couple of years, a real blossoming of creativity across all industries, but particularly across our industry. I think that that the quality of the ideas and the imagination and the output will be put centre stage and sit alongside the debate on technology and data and its role going going forward. But you know, talking to the creative people in our businesses, they've desperately missed the the social and human interaction, and so and everyone's looking forward. The overwhelm, of course, some people are. Some people are anxious, but the overwhelming sentiment is we just can't wait to get back to see people, to sit with people, to talk with people, to spark off people, because that's what creative industries really need.
1: Sure. I mean, I know you've reduced, I think, office footprint by a quarter in, in, your, in your last figures. And I guess some of that might have been down to those offices that you you didn't need anymore. What does it look like in those coming months? I mean, for you as the boss, do you need to see people in Golden Square with you? Or is it really about where can they do their best work? Because it is a, you know, the the Golden Square building is really it's quite a symbol for you, I think, and for the industry. You know, the bar the bar in the reception, I think at least it used to be. And it's it's a real hive of activity, or it was before COVID.
0: Look, I said earlier you need a flexible plan. So maybe we'll flex. But the current plan is that we are going to reorganize Golden Square, but very much stay in it. Uh, The only reorganization will be to do with, yes, a a, a a different rhythm and pattern of working. And so, like again, like many companies, we're probably looking at 60% of the time in the office and allowing people to work where they work best some of the time. But um, we will encourage people, if they need any encouraging, which I don't think they will, to come into the office. Again, many businesses will have to get over the short term anxiety, and I think there will be people have people have spent a year at home and there are people anxious and they've got they get you get into a routine and a different routine. but I think it's better for the business and better for people to be with other people ultimately much of the time and that's what we'll be counting on and moving towards. I think the thing that we're going to look at changing uh here is. The extent to which all our businesses collaborate and how they do that and reorganizing our offices accordingly we're not going to do it immediately i want to put out some symbols of change when people come back in two weeks time you know if they need to come into the office they can and we'll be operating you know in a covid secure way two meters separation but by the time we get into june uh, and people come back into the office potentially in full force pretty much uh, we want some symbols of change. We'll have the what was previously the, the PLC floor, the top floor, with all the nice views. So that'll be open to everyone. So that'll be a communal working space for people to get together, to meet, to discuss from our different businesses within Golden Square, as will the second floor, as will, and there'll be uh, a, a revamp of reception. I want to signal that this is new MNC Saatchi. This is the way we're looking at it. This is new MNC Saatchi. This is our chance for a, uh, a reset and not just let's fix the the governance. It's it's much more than that. But keeping the vibrancy and 36 golden square as the the heartbeat of our company is something that I think is a competitive advantage. I think it's good for people. I think they'll want it. The feedback we have is yes, small degrees of high anxiety, but large majority of can't wait to get back to the office, see people and start working in, in similar ways to before, but
1: improved. This episode of Leading is supported by Lockton. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but first here's Chris Brown, Lockton's managing partner, on leading through the latest technological disruption. Advances in technology have, without a shadow of a doubt, shifted the way that companies work with their clients, customers, and suppliers, which have in themselves resulted in a material change to risk profile. And the recognition of that by leaders is clearly increased. I think a while ago, the matter of cyber didn't necessarily reach the, the CEO level, but now it absolutely has. It's near the top of all risk registers with an increased profile and hybrid working also has merely added to some of those challenges. Did you suspect that you would have had your chance to, to lead M&C, Murray, at, at some stage uh, and it just was the, the surprise was it was the crisis, if you like? Um, because if you look at the way both of the search agencies, they promote from within. I mean, you, you, were, you were there in 95. You've absolutely had leadership roles within, within the agency. And I think, you know, David and co are slightly slash significantly older than you. And so, you know, your time would have come. Do you think? Well, I'd like to think so. I mean, I've been trying to get rid of them for decades, to be honest. Yeah, well, uh, but, and you, but uh, the flip side of that is you have been incredibly loyal, and I want to talk about some of your early leadership challenges. You, do you never have that draw of thinking, well, what would happen if, if I set up McLennan & Partners, if I wasn't within one of the Saatchi agencies? We almost did that.
0: Um, we almost did that three years in, we and a, me and a bunch. We thought, I was chief executive of the agency then, thought, let's go and do that. We decided not to. We probably chickened out, I suppose. We then decided, actually, we did launch a management buyout bid at one point, but then the company floated instead. So I have had my moments of let's go and, and do it for myself. But I think I, I was moaning one evening to some to a friend in the bar having a drink, saying, oh, God, you know, I do all this stuff, and do I really get the recognition? And I was, I was whining away. And then it, after a while, he said, shall I tell you what I think? I said, yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. He said, I think you're incredibly lucky, and you should shut up and enjoy it. Um, You've got a great job. I think that was my overwhelming sense throughout, is that I had a great job. I did have the the freedom to do what I enjoy most. And what I enjoy most is dealing with people and, and dealing with communications. I think the key to leading in our business is you've got to really, perhaps it's an obvious thing, you've got to have a deep fascination, enjoyment and interest in people the people that you're trying to persuade or behavior change or sell to, but also just being with the people themselves and and getting the right talent, getting the right culture, nudging them in the right direction along the way. And I had a chance to do that across the world in different categories, in different set. great attraction is, the reason you didn't get bored is, or I didn't, was because, well, it's quite difficult, so it's challenging. But more to the point, you're dealing with Standard Bank in South Africa and then an electric car in Shanghai, and then a supermarket in, in Sydney, and then a, a government campaign in London. It's just infinite variety, really. And so, yes, I suppose to answer your question, occasionally thought of uh, going my own way. Am I an entrepreneur? Not sure, actually. I think you could say, if I was, I'd have left and done it for myself. But I had a, I had a pretty good job, so I shouldn't really complain.
1: And it served you well, you know. You're 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 there. You're there at the top now. So uh, whoever that person was that 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 was buying you the drink, well, you you can probably thank them for that advice. I, I will next time. I can yes. I'm interested in early uh, responsibility, which I think set you. Because the the thing is, I think you have to take early responsibility and early leadership in in this industry. I mean, you joined in uh, Sarchie and Sarchi in '83. You might have been a barrister. The money wasn't immediate and and obvious, so you you went down the advertising route. I think that's a fair appraisal. Fair appraisal. I'm interested in the response from your your father, who who was in the army. Who maybe I don't know might have favoured the law over advertising, but you, you know your your choice was made.
0: Yeah. Yes. It really. It really was. I studied law for three years. I wasn't very good at it either. I, I should add that. I, I didn't do very well at law. Uh, I'm not sure my heart was ultimately in it. It was a sensible choice. I think my parents were very pleased with my sensible choice because it meant that I would be able to earn some money. But no, they never, the only thing he was certain about was he didn't want me to go into the army for whatever reason. But, but apart from that, no, no, no pressures either way. And Sachi and Sarchi in the early 80s was, was quite glamorous, uh, slightly risqué, perhaps, in terms of a career choice in certain respects. But it was riding high. It had just won the British Airways account. It had done 79 election. Labour isn't working. It was front-page news, not just business news. And it was glamorous and attractive and, and fun. So not a difficult choice. I mean, I only got offered two jobs, actually, coming out of university. One was one was with Unilever, Lever Brothers, and one was such Everyone else turned me down. And actually, I accepted the one at Lever Brothers, and the marketing director, to his credit, said, "Do you know what? I, I think don't take, it. don't do that, don't do that. Go go and work for Sartre's. So you'll have much more fun. You'll get paid more. And I think you're better suited to it." So that was very that was very good of him to say that. I think.
1: And I'm interested in this role of account director because because I'm not sure if everyone outside advertising would understand how it all functions. I mean, broadly, I think there are uh, the creative half who are creating the, the the wonderful commercials, the stuff that we see externally, and then there is this role of account director, which I view as the personal people that keep the client happy. Uh, and you ascended to account director. You were pretty young. I think probably by about the age of 26, you were account director or, or group account director. There were uh, you know dozens of people under you. And what's the key to that function? Is it keeping the likes of British Airways happy? Yeah, I mean,
0: the, the thing you have to realize about our business, well, you will have realized, is that everyone has extraordinarily grand titles. Everyone's a chief executive or an executive or a director. I remember when I joined, I was an account executive, and I remember calling my mother and saying, "I've become an account supervisor," and she said, "Well, I'm so sorry, darling. Never mind." And I said, "No, no, no. You don't understand. Supervisor's better than executive, and it doesn't sound better. Well, it is. So um, yeah, we all had these these rungs on the ladder that you made your way through. Running a group was a significant overpromotion, probably." Uh, looking back on it, you know, I was in charge of about 30 people at the age of 26, and somewhere in their mid-30s, and it was looking after clients like Toyota and British Airways and various drinks companies and the Mirror Group newspapers, so substantial business. And I used to work, have to work seven days a week. I was out of my depth. I wouldn't call myself, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, the, the leader word. Was I a leader? Absolutely not. I wouldn't call myself a leader. Uh, at that point i wasn't even i didn't even have a vision i didn't have a mission I didn't have an idea of what I was trying to get to it was just managing day to day managing the people getting out the right work at the right cost and to that extent i suppose yes keeping the client happy is what you're what you're what you're doing managing the people in the group corralling them i was never one for management books and management gurus and too much structure i'm not saying it's the right thing everyone has their own way mine was much more about walking around, talking to people, nudging them, creating the right culture, the right atmosphere, the right motivations, wanting to win, wanting to be the best group, do better than everyone else, quite competitive. Um, you know, the 13 different groups. Kershaw was one of them at the time. So quite competitive even within the agency then? Very much so. We used to have pitches against the other groups. You know, uh, one of the old Saatchi tricks was don't put your business up for pitch. We'll do an internal pitch. And it would work very well. You know, you'd know, you have your own creative teams and so on and so forth. So I don't think it was hugely enjoyable, actually, because it was highly pressurized. I didn't know what I was doing. I had older people working for me who made life reasonably uncomfortable. Uh, and you were quite isolated at quite an early age because you were uh, removed from your peers, if you like, making it sound like some sort of sub-story. It wasn't at all. It was, after all, the late 80s, and, and life was quite good in the advertising
1: business. But you must have learned a lot from it, nevertheless. I mean, if, you, if anyone, it never seems good at the time, but if you're thrown into those situations, you can't help but pick things up that hold, hold you in good stead for later in your career.
0: Yeah, I think the most important thing, I'm not sure I learned it at the time, maybe I did, but certainly looking back thereafter was two things. Both are very straightforward, really, which is you don't have to be remarkable in any way to run a business. You just need to have remarkable people around about you. I know that sounds it is a bit of a cliche, but it's true. If you have people who are excellent at all the things that a company needs to be excellent at, you can be unremarkable and still be successful. That's a truth. The other one is listen, think and act, I suppose, and then go back to the top again. So you, you've got to stop making decisions so quickly and acting first. You know, you've got to to in order to appear decisive you've got to, i think as you get older you can do it quicker actually because you become more experienced but I, I i still think that the listen think and act is still a lesson that i try and tell myself every day um uh, but rather than talk control and act so uh, yes i learned some of those basics i suppose back then
1: and how was it for scaling an agency in the in those years because you have described how tough it is but also the those story of the 80s do linger about you know martinis at lunchtime You've talked about the internal competitive nature. And um, yeah, I don't think advertising was a, a very easy place for women to be, for example, in the 80s. So just interested in your reflections on on that time. And I have reflected on it recently, actually,
0: uh, in terms of our organization now and the old organization and how how just a different culture in a different time. As it happens, Saatchi and Saatchi had a very strong female contingent at a senior level. You know, we had a uh, the chairman, Jennifer Lang, we had Marilyn Cox head of planning. You know, we had we had a lot of senior women, m- many more than most other companies and industries and, and agencies at the time, but it was a very masculine culture and the opposite of what you'd call inclusive, like and probably what would be called toxic masculinity. Yes, let's go to the pub and drink lager. It wasn't martinis, unfortunately. But it was a um, pints of lager at lunchtime. That's what happened. And it makes you shudder slightly when you look around, you think of some of the unrealized, I suppose, difficulties, perhaps offense, that was caused from the women in the agency who were quite, as I said, there was a high percentage of them. When I, when I graduated and joined their scheme, I think there were seven of us, three, three women, four men, back in those days. But the culture was, that, look, it was a product of the 80s, and it was a very, very different place and so different to, to now, uh, and everything that we, we in some ways, are beginning to take for granted, which is a good thing in terms of how a company should think and act and behave.
1: And just reflect, if you could, Murray, on that. So the decision around 95-96, when the, uh, if, effectively, I think it was Morris who was edged out of his own agency, Saatchi & Saatchi, the brothers had perhaps extended themselves a little too much. There was talk about the midland bank acquisition possibly you were pretty much very senior one one of the the front men for sarchis uh, already at that time because you'd handled a, a number of the 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 key accounts and then you chose to to jump ship and join the breakaway at mnc which, which, which you're leading now what was very interesting i delved back into campaign magazine where else from the time a lot of criticism of your decision to go with the brothers and, and the senior team. And also I detected in the pages in those times, a lot of people very envious of, of you and your progress and, and uh, you know, how your career had gone.
0: There, there was a bit of, there was a little bit of that. Uh, and I surprised myself going. I think one of the reasons that I, I did was because I'd always worked relatively to anyone else, closely with Charles Saatchi. I'd worked on the Conservative campaign, the Galahad campaign, the British Airways campaign. Those were his only three pieces of business he got involved with. So, And I was up in his office one day and he turned around and said, uh, oh, we're, we're, we're leaving. Do you want to come? I said, what? Um, uh, yeah, we're going to leave. Do you want to come? I went, you can't leave. What are you talking? So he we went through all of that. And then I said, uh, and I do remember saying, well, I might. I don't know. I need to think about that. And then he came back and said, well, you can have 5% of the agency. <laughs> that made a difference. But I still wasn't convinced, to be honest, and my loyalty was far more to the people who worked for me than the people I worked for. Uh, that was true. And I, and I, and I thought, I don't, I don't want, to, I'm not going to abandon them in any way. From a selfish perspective, I looked upwards and there weren't many people left. Um, so I thought, that's quite attractive. Uh, I can move from managing director to chief executive. And then there was a call from Morris Archie one day, and it's funny how life works out. He said, are you coming? And he had left two days before. And I said, I don't know, really. He's, I said, uh, I'm not sure. I, I I I owe people stuff here, and I, I'm due to stand up in front of everyone tonight and tell them that we're fine and it'll be okay. And if I do that, I'm, I can't leave. He said, I understand, which is why when we finish this call and you put down the phone, you need to leave and never go back and put the phone down. So then you think, okay. Uh, and then I just sort of found myself walking out at the door and saying to my PA, it was, it was oats-like actually. Um, she said, oh, where are you going? And I said, I'm going out. And she said, will you be long? And I said, I oh, may be some time. <laughs> and, um, and I sort of found myself doing that. But one of the reasons was because we believed we were going to recreate the agency and employ all the people. And to some extent, I did. But um, uh, it was just one of those moments when I'm, you made an a intuitive
1: call. And is that a mo- is that a moment of real learning for you a, 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 as a leader, or that were the things that came along came along later? I mean, in this recreation point. In terms of a leader, I don't necessarily think so. It's uh, I always think it's one of those
0: interesting words. Leader, isn't it? Gentlemen, um, are you a leader? Are you are you a leader? I, like, uh, I don't know. Am I a leader? I think. I mean, when you break it down, it's to do with having a degree of clarity and imagination of where you want to take the company it's nudging people in the right direction creating the right culture making sure you can break it down into all these different constituent parts and I certainly learned that along the the way rapidly I think the thing I, I learned most keenly at Saatchi and Saatchi and when we started the company was that very basic point if you surround yourself with the best people and you create the right culture you will win you will win you may, you'd may you have to be really unlucky not to. You know, good people can die in a bad culture, and the, and the same that you can find diamonds who are, are in a bad culture and they can become brilliant. That simple thought is one that I learned early on and continue apply, to apply you know, now as well. You know, if we have the right people in the right culture in the right places with the right, I suppose, the thing we needed to add, given what's happened within our company, with the right systems, processes, and support,
1: then you'll win. It's never as sexy to talk about systems and support, but I guess um, that, that's oh. the modern world. I mean, where would the Sarches have been with systems and support back in the 70s? Probably they'd have thrown it out the window.
0: They definitely would have done. Um, I, think, I think now, and it's a technology thing to an extent as well, in that it can help free you up from admin and bureaucracy, actually. And you need to embrace it and see it as your friend. It's not just a sort of painful necessity, so to speak. It's something which can, can help people do that, free people up certain controls can lead to a greater freedom.
1: And what about met so that you've learnt this by as you say you're in a people industry you've learned from the people around you specific mentors that you would call out. I think you got to become quite close to Charles because of the British Airways account and I think there was another chap who um it was so very you, you seem to have gravitated to all the blokey accounts Murray this is my observation you were you were booze fags and uh, and well airlines Oogs, politics and airlines. I mean,
0: yeah, nothing which would make you desperately popular in today's society, actually. That's certainly true. I didn't have many mentors. Actually, I would say, and I'm not very good at mentoring people either, I don't think. I mean, obviously, Morris was there, and Morris and Charles, from a distance, having said which. In my early years, there was um, a man called John Sharkey. He's now Lord Sharkey, actually. He was my first close boss. I certainly learned disciplines and rigour from him. He, you know, he, was very, he was very demanding in terms of what you had to know about your markets and your marketing and your client's business. And you need to know it better than your client. So I, I learned from from him.
1: And he's Lord Sharkey of Silk Cut now, is he? Almost certainly,
0: yeah. <laughs> of, of British American tobacco I think now, but
1: yeah. I see. So you're not much of a mentor now, but I guess you've got to lead, lead everyone, whether you're giving them the one-on-one advice you know, or not. What will success look like? What will MNC look like in a couple of years when it's had the uh, McLennan treatment? I think it'll be,
0: uh, it'll be a more transparent, connected, global company with greater professionalism and governance and controls with a view to freeing people up to do what they do better. will keep that Saatchi spirit you know it's the it's the old adage it's 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 so well known it's become a cliche which is nothing is impossible that's the Saatchi spirit the belief that an individual can make what seems highly improbable actually happen it's that romanticism and we absolutely want to keep that you know we call it the meaningful change now which is the Saatchi spirit it's meaning that you can do really important things and we fly at a different altitude and we achieve more important things in the world than other agencies. That's why people will join us, why they want to work with us, and we also create extraordinary imaginative solutions to clients' problems. That's what we've got to keep, but I think it will feel more, we'll we'll live up to our promise of diversity of thought in terms of who we work with, how we work. It'll be more, as I said, transparent, more connected across disciplines and more connected across geographies and, and a stronger sense of what the brand is and does.
1: Because it's the first time, uh, I suppose, you, you have Saatchi over the door, but you, you haven't got a Saatchi in the building. And I guess you've tested whether the brand still resonates, but you've got quite a job on to, not everyone in the building over time will remember that romanticism. So it's up to people like you to keep it alive, I guess.
0: Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I always used to say to Morris that I'm more Saatchi than he is, he just has the name. You know, He's worked for other companies, I never have. And so I think I, I do understand it. And I think people here, they genuinely have an affection and belief and affinity with what the brand is. And it goes very deep. And I think a company that's held together through culture can sound like a soft, soft links. I think they're very, very strong links, more so than just being bound together by revenue. So we'll, we'll think about that and work very hard on that going forward in terms of how we we maintain it and strengthen
1: it. One challenge you have is to, hold on to everything that Saatchi is famous for, but at the same time, you have to push it on. I'm conscious that you've worked with David and Jeremy and Bill pretty much your whole career. So you really have that balancing act between being the continuity from the past, but also you've got to plot a future, if you like. You've got to be able to turn around and say, actually, some things that Jeremy and David instituted weren't working, but you've got to do it in a very nice way with a smile on your face, I suppose.
0: Yes, I made a decision early on in my very brief uh, career is CEO PLC, that I wasn't going to blame the past and the people from the past for anything and that I shouldn't do that because I was part of that. So I need to take responsibility for it. And any change that I'm introducing is, is, is changed to what I was part of, which is fine. And you just need to, you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to say that was wrong. I was part of that. Admit that mistake or error and enjoy a new and different way forward, I suppose and And I think listening and allowing in more different voices, you know I don't think we were that good at that in the past. An example of that is you know we, we have the equals network which represents gender equality across our UK businesses. So to have an advisory panel, because we, we we are actually with majority women in the business in London, fifty three percent, but not at a senior level. So when you get to a senior level, it's an age-old problem in our business. And you can't change that overnight. We've changed it on the PLC board overnight because all the non-execs left, so the opportunity was there. But you can't fire all the men and, and employ women instead. So it's a, it's it's a process. And in the meantime, having an advisory panel of senior women advising the male bias at the top of the company is something that we've introduced. I think going down those routes, allow it, listening to more people, allowing more people in, and more voices to be heard is something that will change dramatically. And also the structure, you know. Of the company changing that dramatically as well. Because it was, as I said before, idiosyncratic, and now it'll be quite different. And you've you've seen all the structural change that we put in place, the five divisions, the exco, and so on and so forth. The thing I'm looking forward to, to most is, I, you know, I I've I've thought from time to time, what would it be like if this went on forever? You know, if it was another three years, what would happen? Where well, you haven't been to see anyone anywhere, and it's all done on Zoom, whether it's the US or Australia or South Africa or China or wherever it might be. And I think that would be, I stopped thinking because I didn't have an answer for that. Uh, I rely on seeing people. And that's the thing I've found hardest in management. I like to be with people. And I think I can have my greatest effect when I'm in the same room, when I'm talking to them every day in small ways, not just having meetings. So that's the thing I, I've sort of missed most. Uh, and I would struggle with most if it went on for many more years, certainly, uh, to, to do what I do and to do it to best effect. Yeah, driving driving change. I mean, it's... a. Uh, uh, again, it's the same for everyone. You want to drive change through the business, but not for the sake of it. you know it's always got to have a purpose and a goal in mind. and you can be made to look stupid quite quickly as well if you if you overreact in the wrong way too quickly and change course in order let's not make Saatchi brutally simple, let's make it about complexity. you know you've got to recognize what's good and strong and to keep and what needs changing. and there were some there were some cultural things that needed changing.
1: Great stuff well Murray next time in person maybe, but uh, for now, thanks so much for the conversation. All good. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton. Please rate and review us if you like what you've heard. For more creative industry leaders like Murray, you can also dive into the Leading Archive. Listen to fashion designer Amanda Wakeley, the Northern Ballet's Mark Skipper, and Chris Hurst from Havas. This episode was supported by Lockton, a global independent insurance broker whose people have the freedom to think and act in the best interests of their clients. For more details, go to locktoninternational.com slash gb insight. More leading episodes coming soon.